Well, good morning. Well, it is a tremendous privilege and great kindness by your pastor to invite me uh, and a great blessing for our church in Woodhaven, Grace Baptist Church, that, that he would go there and preach, and I'm sure they're going to be well fed today. Uh, they love listening to him. Talks fast like me, but I think he's very, he's very deep and theologically sound, and um, he's easy to follow, and many say to me, when's he coming back? Uh, and so we're blessed to have him, and sometimes uh, Brother VJ comes as well, and he too is a great blessing. So what I do today is I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and look at just one verse, but I want to set context, so I want to read verses 17 to the end of the chapter. But we'll concentrate on verse 30. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. This I say therefore, and testifying the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of their blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, having given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness, with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, as we consider now third person of the glorious Trinity, the Spirit. I pray that he would enable us to hear, to believe, and Lord, to obey and apply your very word. So please, Lord, we pray that you would take away distractions in our minds. You would prepare our hearts to receive and Lord, to live the word of God, for the glory of God. In his name we pray, amen. Well, Paul told the believers at Ephesus to put on the new man. And then he said that the new man was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And the reason they need to put on the new man is because they already are the new man. They already are the new man in Christ. They are already regenerated, already saved through the grace of God. They are already children of God and in the kingdom of God and a member of the household of God. 
they are already living stones in the temple of God. So they need to put on or behave like what they already are. Therefore, he said, you should no longer walk like you used to walk when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. They should no longer walk in the futility of their minds and in darkness and in ignorance right, and in the hardness of their hearts. And, and they need to take off what's already been crucified at the cross, which is the old man or the old nature. And instead, walk according to the new nature, their new nature. Uh, and then Paul gives them some very specific and practical ways to put off the old man and to put on the new. And so in verse 25, he tells them, stop lying. Right? Speak the truth in love, he says. And in verse 26, he says, be angry. Right? Have righteous anger against sin, but don't let that turn to unrighteous anger. Because if you do, you'll not only be sinning, he says, but you will give the devil a foothold into your heart. He can wreak all kinds of havoc on you, your faith, and on the unity of the body. Then in verse 28, he said, don't steal anymore, but rather work. Work to supply for your own needs and for the needs of others. Verse 29, he said, to not speak any corrupt words, words that hurt people, words that tear people down. But rather, he said, speak words that build people up and bless others. Verse 31, he'll list six things uh, that they needed to put away. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, malice. Then in verse 32, he lists three things that they should replace that. Kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. With God's forgiving them in Christ as the motivator for it. And then stuck in the middle of all of that, right, of all these do's and don'ts, is verse 30. Which says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And to me, it's a fascinating verse. It's a fascinating verse on many levels. And clearly, Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to keep us from doing this. And to live a life of true righteousness and holiness, which we were created in Christ for. What I'd like to do today is to look at this one verse about grieving the Holy Spirit using a two-point outline. Firstly, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Second, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. First, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, the beginning of it. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now again, it's a fascinating and an amazing statement not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Right? And, and it is because God is self-sufficient. He needs absolutely nothing from any of us. We add zilch, nothing, to his person. We fill no void because he has no voids. Nothing we say or do can make him more glorious than he already is. He did not have a beginning. He has always been. He is unchangeable, always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. All of his attributes, love, his power, his wisdom, right? all eternal, all unchanging. Yet we read... We can grieve him. Now the word grieve means to make sorrowful, to offend, to cause pain or distress. Truly, most of us don't think of the Holy Spirit as being grieved or that we could do that to him or grieve him. But Paul says, commands, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now as an aside, this verse should put to bed forever the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses and others who say that the Holy Spirit is not a person but some force or some power. Because forces and powers can't be grieved. Only people can be grieved. You can grieve me. You cannot grieve my car battery, and you cannot grieve the outlets in my house, but you can grieve me. While the Holy Spirit is indeed a person, he is the third person of the glorious triune Godhead. And not only can he be grieved, but the Father can be grieved and the Son can be grieved as well. In Genesis 6, 
Because the intention of the thoughts of men's hearts were evil continually, we read that the Lord was so sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. This does not mean that God made a mistake because he couldn't foresee what was going to happen. He's not surprised by anything like the human race free-falling into depravity. He's not amazed that this would happen. He knows the end from the beginning, but he is also a personal God who responds to his creatures. Thus, I believe that God has emotions, but unlike you and I, they do not alter his unchanging character. And when those whom he has made in his image rebel against him, it grieves his heart. We read in Psalm 78:40, how often they, talking about Israel in the wilderness, how often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again in Psalm 95:10, we read, 40 years I was grieved with that generation. Not only can the father be grieved, but the son can be as well. In Mark 3, Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and there's a man there with a withered hand, uh, and Jesus asks the Jews if it was lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. When they wouldn't answer him, we read this, and when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Of course, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. We read it today, 63.10 of Isaiah. Speaking of Israel, Isaiah said, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. In Acts 7.51, Stephen said to the Jews, you stiff neck and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And to resist in the end means to grieve. So the triune God can be grieved because they are three persons, as I said before, and only persons can be grieved. Well, the first question we have to ask is, why does the Holy Spirit even become grieved? And the answer is because he's holy. He is the Holy Spirit of God. And as God, he is morally perfect, without sin, pure and righteous. Right? And perfect holiness and righteousness hates sin because it is Sin being 180 degrees contrary to the very character of God. In 1 John 1, 5, we read that God is light, He is holy, He is pure, and in Him is no darkness at all. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 6, that God dwells in unapproachable light. Isaiah 6, 3, you're, you're familiar with that? We hear that He is holy, holy, holy. So the Holy Spirit hates and detests sin the same way a holy God does because he is God. And you don't have to look hard to see how much a holy God hates sin because all you really have to do is just look at the cross where the sins of God's people were put upon the only holy man that ever lived, God's own son. And there he unleashed divine wrath upon his son, the equivalent of all his elect, spending eternity in, eternity in hell. So clearly, God hates sin. Now the next question is, how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? How do born-again believers, those who are the children of God, how do they grieve the Holy Spirit? And the answer is, by their sin, and more specifically, by their continual unrepentant sin. 
You see, Ephesians 4.24 says that when God regenerated us, he created us according to his own character, which is in true righteousness and holiness, to be separated from sin. So when we sin, when we go back to what we were separated from, it grieves him. So yes, we're saved. Yes, we're new creations in Christ. Yes, we are in the beloved. Yes, our names are written in heaven. And yes, we're the new man, part of the body of Christ, but we still sin. And when we do, it grieves the spirit. And we do this in a multitude of ways, just in the context of Ephesians 4. We grieve the spirit when we lie. Right? When we have unrighteous anger, when we steal, say things that hurt people and tear them down, when we're full of bitterness and clamor and evil speaking and malice, when we won't forgive someone. And listen, we grieve the spirit in a multitude of other ways. When we watch pornography and lust after another person. When we know something is sinful, but we think it or engage in it anyway. And how often have I done this, I say to myself. When I know, I know it's sinful to have unrighteous anger. Yet I willfully become angry because someone has crossed my path. Or I didn't get my way. Or my wife made me five minutes late for something. That grieves the spirit. So when you know God's will, and you go against God's will, that grieves the spirit. Like things like gossip and slander. Who among us doesn't know that gossip and slander are sinful? We know that, right? Yet it seems we do it anyway at times. Listen, I've been in conversations where I say to myself, I shouldn't say something because that would be gossip. Or that would be slander. And I'm saying I shouldn't do it as the words are coming out of my mouth. And I'm grieved that I grieve the spirit of God. We also grieve the spirit when we dishonor and disrespect our parents or we don't love and serve our spouses. It grieves them when we're jealous or envious or greedy or prejudiced or have hatred in our hearts for anyone. You see, the spirit knows what we're thinking. He knows our very thoughts before we have them. He knows what's hidden in the deepest crevice of our hearts and he, he knows how we feel and if our thoughts are sinful and our feelings are sinful and that grieves him. Listen, it grieves him when we love the world and not the God who saved us out of it. Grieves him when we love money and we trust in it and our jobs and security and what we have instead of the very God who provides for us. It grieves him when we fear man and not God, when we care more about what others think than what God does. It grieves him when we compromise with sin, when we justify it, when we make allowances for it. It grieves him when we're ashamed to stand up and speak up for Christ and his word. Grieves him when there's disunity in the body. Or when we have spiritual pride. I mean, how grievous must it be to the Spirit who has given us his fruit and through whom all the gifts of Christ are given to us. When we have spiritual pride. When we think we're better than other Christians because we know more. Or we do more. Or we're more important in the kingdom because of what we do than other people. When we boast about what we do. When we make a show of what we know and do. Now you know what else grieves the Spirit? It grieves Him when we spend little or no time with God. When we're too busy to read and pray. Too busy to meditate on His Word. When our devotional life is sporadic at best. And listen, it grieves Him when we don't truly love the brethren or serve Him in His church or share His gospel. Listen, it grieves Him when the corporate gathering is not a priority by his people. Or when we're constant complainers. 
Because you know what that says when we're a complainer all the time? It basically says God made a mistake. And he's not sovereign in my life. Because if he was, this wouldn't be going on. And it grieves him when we're not grateful. Even in the hard and difficult things. One commentator said this. He said, it's ingratitude on our part to grieve him upon whom our salvation depends. Now I also believe the spirit is grieved by the unhealthy emphasis on the Spirit in so many churches today, over the Father and over the Son, where the thrust is all about spiritual gifts or spiritual excitement, instead of living and walking in the Spirit, where they use the Spirit as a means of health and prosperity. I believe it's also grieved by our unbelief. Listen, we have the very witness of the Spirit in us. We have the witness of our own changed lives. We know what we were like before God saved us. Yet at times we do not believe. We don't trust in him. We still carry guilt over sins we committed long ago. As if when we ask him to forgive us, that he didn't really do it, so we gotta keep asking him. Do we trust him or don't we trust him? And it grieves him when we don't trust him. And when we trust him, we live like we trust him. I mean, would it not grieve you if your children who you love and you have always tried to help and to bless. They didn't trust you. They didn't believe you. So when we doubt God and his goodness, and when we doubt the power of the gospel, we, we grieve the spirit. And there are countless other ways we grieve the spirit, but the point is, we the people of God can grieve him. And we're told not to do that. Not to do that. Now let me say, I think the main reason, I believe the main reason the spirit is grieved by our sin is because he loves us. Yes, he's holy and he hates sin. Yes, of course. But he also loves us. He loves us like the Father loves us. He loves us like the Son loves us. We just sang, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Do you believe that? I believe that. Can't, I can't understand it, but I believe it. Well, the Spirit loves us the same way. And he, too, loves us with an everlasting love that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principality, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor anything created can separate us from he, he loves us that way. As Psalm 36, 7 says, he too has a precious and unfailing love for us. Psalm 136, 6 says, he too abounds in steadfast love for us. As Zephaniah 3, 17 says, he too right, will quiet us with his love. And he has loved us before the foundation of the world. And his love for us has moved him to regenerate us and to sanctify us and to seal us for the day of redemption. And because of all of that, he indwells us from the moment we're born again. Paul asked the saints in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know, it's a rhetorical question, they should know this, do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And because of this, because God is in us, we have a holy disposition and we have a relationship with the triune God. And the Spirit is keeping us and he's growing us in holiness and conforming us more and more into the beautiful and glorious image of Christ. And he's enabling us and equipping us and preparing us for the glory to come. And because he loves us and desires fellowship with us, it grieves him when we sin. Why? Because he knows what we're doing is gonna hurt us. He knows what we're doing is going to hurt us. He knows the pain and suffering that will come from our sin. And, and out of love for us, it grieves him. You know, if you don't really care about someone, it doesn't grieve you if they do things to hurt themselves. 
but it certainly does grieve you if you care about someone. If I read that someone's kid is mixed up with drugs and ruining their life, I think that's sad, right? And I feel bad for them, but I'm not grieved. But if it were my kid, or one of the kids of, of one of the families at Grace Baptist Church, that would grieve me. That would grieve me. My mother told me a story years ago. She said when she was 14 years old, she was on the roof of her apartment building in Brooklyn smoking cigarettes. And then one day, she said her father went up there and he caught her smoking cigarettes. And I said to her, Mom, what did he do? Did he give you the beating of a lifetime? And she said, no, he didn't do that. I said, well, what did he do? She said, he cried. He cried, then he turned around and he went downstairs. And she said she was devastated by that. That, that she hurt her father who loved her with all of his heart and whom she loved with all of her heart. Well, the Holy Spirit loves us more than we love our loved ones and more than we even love ourselves. And when we sin against him, guess what? We sin against love. And it breaks his heart, so to speak. Now, the Holy Spirit is also grieved because he knows that we're out of the will of his Father of the Father. He knows that our communion with Christ is hindered. He knows that we've given place to the devil to get a foothold into our hearts and to wreak some havoc in our lives. He knows that we've substituted God's best for us with something that is imitation and junk. He knows that sin only brings temporary pleasure. Hebrews 10.25 says that Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. It's temporary. And he also knows what the consequences will be that will come our way because of our sin. Not that we can lose our salvation, we cannot. Not that we can lose the indwelling of the Spirit, we cannot. Right? The scriptures are crystal clear that. But we can suffer the rod of God. We can incur the very loving discipline from God. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Here's why. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So a loving father disciplines his children. He disciplines them when they are wayward to help them and not to hurt them. Well, the other consequences of grieving the spirit could be loss of comfort in trials or not sensing the very spirit's presence in our lives or struggling with assurance of salvation not experiencing his love, although he still loves us, right? Or, or we may lose the joy of our salvation, right? David, after sinning terribly, committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband, prays in Psalm 51, 12, that the joy of his salvation would be restored to him. Another consequence may be becoming fruitless in your service for Christ, or it may crimp, may crimp the genuine fellowship you have with other believers. You see, see, our sin not only creates a distance between us and God, but, but also sometimes between us and other believers. And the truth is, if you're continually grieving the Spirit, you're not going to want to be around other, other Christians or godly Christians. I mean, if I'm knee-deep in sin, I don't want to be around the believers who are going to tell me I'm knee-deep in sin. Also, there may be a withdrawal of grace or suspension of, of the Spirit's fruit. And you may feel like you're in a desert as opposed to being in a well-watered garden. And instead of there being a song in your heart, as Vijay said today, there'll be just some unidentifiable noise there. Well, let me say one last thing on this point, and that is 
the fact that the Holy Spirit can be grieved by us is another thing that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones made this point, that every religion has an ethical standard, he said, but not a one of them commands their followers not to sin because it grieves their God. Muslims are not told not to grieve Allah. Buddhists are not told not to grieve Buddha. Hindus are not told not to grieve whatever God they follow. Only Jehovah, the one true and living God, the triune God, can be grieved because he is the only God that loves his people and is in his people and is related to his people uh, and is with them always. And his people are created according to him in true righteousness and holiness. And so we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Secondly, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Paul says, don't grieve the Spirit of God. And he appeals to them, saying why they shouldn't do that. And why they shouldn't is because they are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Now understand that the Holy Spirit doesn't give us a seal. Rather, he is the seal. We are sealed by him. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.22 that God has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 13, he said that we, are, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, a seal, seal meant a couple of things to Paul's original readers. It was a sign of authority. It was a sign of security, a sign of authenticity, and it was a sign of ownership. Sign of ownership as well. When Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, we read in Daniel 6, 17, that a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. So you see the seal was a sign of authority. After Jesus was put into the tomb, the Jewish leaders are worried that somehow the disciples might try to steal the body and claim he resurrected. So they go to Pilate, they ask Pilate to secure the tomb. And in Matthew 27, 65 and 66, Pilate said, you have your guard, go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone, sealing the stone and setting the guard. And the way they would seal the stone is by putting, after the stone was put on a, you know, put around the hole in the, in the rock, right? What they would do is they would put a rope around it, rope around the stone, attaching it to the walls on each side with hot wax. Then they would take Pilate's signet and they would put that into the, into the hot wax. This carried the weight and the authority of the governor, Pilate, and it secured the stone uh, for, for to break that seal, to break that seal meant the death penalty. Now they would also put a seal on letters or important documents to prove authenticity. What they would do is pour hot wax on an envelope or some document, uh, and then they would put their signet ring into that, proving that the letter or document was from them. When Haman wrote a letter to all the Medes and Persians, telling them to kill all the Jews on such and such a day, he sealed the letter with the king's signet ring. Right? So a seal was a, was a sign of authority, security, authenticity, but it was also a sign of ownership. We read in Revelation 7.3, that the servants of God were sealed on their foreheads, meaning they belong to God. They belong to God. 
Well, to prove that we are God's possession and that we will be secure to the day we inherit glory with Christ, he has put a seal on us, right? By putting the Holy Spirit in us, who will keep us till Christ comes again. And nobody can break that seal. Nobody can break that seal. Nobody has the authority to do that. Nobody has the power to do that, right? This seal secures us from the time we're regenerated to the time of we're glorified. And to show you how safe and how secure our salvation is, Jesus said, and, and we sang about this actually, in John 10, 28 to 30, he said, and I give them, his sheep, eternal life, and they shall never perish, never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them from my hand. Think about that for a second. Think of the omnipotent hand of Jesus Christ and somebody sitting there, you know, prying those fingers loose, so to speak. Nobody's going to do that, he said. He said, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. We're in both hands right there. I and my father are one. And the reason no one can snatch them out of their hands is because they are sealed by the very spirit of God. So brothers and sisters, we bear the mark of God on us. Right? We're his, and he holds us tightly in his omnipotent hand. It's, it's kind of like cattle ranchers, right? They put their seal or their brand on their cattle to show this cattle belongs to me. Well, the Holy Spirit is God's seal to show that we belong to him. We are his property. And no one can mess with the Lord's property. No one can take his stuff. Well, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, for the day of redemption. And the day of redemption is the guarantee of 2 Corinthians 1.22, and it's the promise of Ephesians 1.13. And the day of redemption means the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ. When, when, when your redemption will be completed, when your body will be resurrected from the grave to meet your resurrected soul, and you become one glorified, resurrected person, body and soul, in glory forever with Christ. So the redemption in Ephesians 4 is talking about the redemption of your body. Romans 8.23 says that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And this is when, as 1 Corinthians 15.53 says, the corruptible must put on incorruption and the mortal must put on immortality. This is when, as Philippians 3.21 says, Jesus will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. And this is and has been the hope of every saint throughout the ages. This is the end goal of our election. It's the end goal. As Romans 8.24 says, we were saved in this hope. Right? Christ in you, Colossians 1. Christ in you, the hope of glory. In fact, not only are we waiting for our redemption, but, but Romans 8, 19 to 21 says the creation is waiting for our redemption as well. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So when our day of redemption comes, right, the earth will be destroyed and recreated perfect. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. That's exciting stuff, right? That's what we're looking forward to. 
Now, the amazing thing about our redemption, the amazing thing is, is that the cost for it, to us, free. Absolutely free. No price tag for us. But it cost the Lord Jesus Christ everything. First Peter 1, 18 and 19 says that we're not redeemed, we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So it cost the blood of Christ to redeem you. And it was a price that Jesus was more than willing to pay for you. And not only was he more than willing to pay for you, but it was his absolute focus and drive was to pay this for you. It was his purpose. His mission statement was to come and to save his people from their sins. He had, he had to redeem you. And when you think about who you are and how often, and I say you and me, but how often you have shake, shaken your fist against God and willfully broken his laws and, and reveled in your iniquity and didn't want anything to do with him. And you didn't want him telling you how to live your life, of course. Right? You have to admit, at the end of the day, you were not worth it. I mean, would you shed your blood? Would you give your life for someone who could care less about you? Who would love to see you silenced? Here's the beauty of the gospel. In Jesus' estimation, you were worth it. In his estimation, you were worth it. You were worth it to him to pour out his soul unto death. You were worth it to him to be assaulted by men and Satan and to come under the fierce judgment and wrath of God. You were worth it to him to leave heaven and the worship of angels and fellowship with the Father and, and to veil his deity here for a season. And you were worth it to him, here's why, because you are a loved gift from the Father to the Son. That's what you are. And because you were worth it to him, he willingly and lovingly paid an eternal price for you. And then he put a seal on you until he comes back again because he's not going to lose you. And that seal is the Holy Spirit who sees you also as of tre tremendous value and worth. Here's why. Because you're Christ's. You're, and what's his is yours. And he's not going to let anyone in any way tamper with one of Christ's own. Nobody, nobody will botch up your final redemption and your place with Christ in glory. Amen? Well, let me close by asking two questions and making one statement. Two questions, one statement. First question is this. Is there a sense of spiritual powerlessness in your life? Is there a lack of joy in your life? Do you feel far from God and from the saints this day? Is it hard for you to see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Is Bible reading and meditating on the Bible and praying, not a labor for you? Is your passion and fire for Christ at a very low flicker? Well, if so, maybe because you're grieving the Holy Spirit of God. There may be sin in your life that you're not dealing with. And what you should ask God is what the psalmist asked him in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, where he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see 
if there is any wicked way in me. And if there is any wicked way in you, then you need to repent of it. Turn away from it. Turn back to Christ. Second question is this. How do we keep from grieving the Spirit? How do we keep from grieving the Spirit? And as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we remember that the Holy Spirit is always with us and that we should start every day reminding ourselves that we are a child of God. Therefore, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And he knows our thoughts and he hears our words and he sees what we do. And here's the thing. We need to remember what he's doing in us. Right? We need to remember why he's even there and he's there because he's preparing us for glory. Brothers and sisters, you are being prepared for glory. He's preparing us to receive the crown, the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, all the same thing. He's preparing us for glory. He's preparing us for the new earth where Revelation 22, 3 and 5 says there will be no more curse where we shall see the Lord and his name shall be on our foreheads where there shall be no more night nor sun because Jesus Christ is the light and we will reign with him forever. And as Revelation 21, 4 says, it is a place where there'll be no more tears or death or sorrow or pain. So if we dwell on what the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is preparing us for, it ought to cause us to think, to think that, that, that on the things that grieve the Spirit would be unthinkable for us. I mean, why would we want to grieve the very one who is preparing us for eternal glory? And now the statement. The statement I'd like to make is this. The only reason glory is being prepared for us right now is because Christ was put to grief for our sins. Isaiah 53.10 says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. He has put him to grief. He suffered the penalty of our sins so that we could be pardoned from them and given life in him. And if you're not a Christian this day, this is where your only hope lies for eternal life instead of eternal death. This is where your only hope lies for heaven instead of hell. This is where your only hope lies for unspeakable joy instead of unspeakable torment. And what separates you from eternal life and heaven and unspeakable joy this day are your sins. But the one who confesses their sins and trusts that Christ, out of love for them, bore their sins at the cross, well, they will be saved. The one who repents of their sins and believes that Christ and Christ alone is their Lord and Savior, they will be saved. Right? And this is God's one and only way to be forgiven of all your sins and given the Holy Spirit as a seal for the day of redemption. Don't play with that, my friends. Don't hesitate. Run to Christ. Run to Christ if you don't know him this day. Trust him. Throw yourself at him. Follow him. He'll save you. He promises to do that. He truly seek me, says you'll find me. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you would be so kind and gracious. You would to send your son into this world to save sinners, send your spirit to indwell them and to enlighten and enliven them and to seal them with the day of redemption. But who will we? That you would do such things, that there would be such love for us. Father, I pray that we as your people, Lord, would, would really seek in our own hearts, Lord, not to, not to grieve you, not to grieve the Spirit, but Lord, to walk close and to enjoy with such fellowship. And Lord, for the soul that doesn't know you this day, Lord, 
What separates them is, is the blood of Christ, which they need so desperately. I pray that you would draw them to him. I pray, Father, that they would see there is no hope outside of him and that they would see his great love for sinners. And would you save their soul? Please be merciful, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.